0: A couple of years ago, the U.S. State Department decided to invest in the revamping of an embassy in Islamabad, Pakistan. There was an acute awareness of the the ugliness of the old embassy. Jay, I think you have a picture, beautiful, right? And and they had had a hope to build bridges um, and win hearts and minds in a predominantly Islamic country with some hostility towards the West through art. The State Department decided to procure a statue from American artist John Baldessari for a mere four hundred thousand dollars, that would act as a sentry to the embassy and riff off common scripture to both American Christians and Muslims. The camel contemplating the needle—it's a life-size ca- camel. I really want to affirm the impulse to that you know, beautifying normally cold spaces through art like that. I, I want to affirm that impulse that it has a real place in the middle of diplomacy and reconciliation of hospitality. But surely you all see the irony here, right? <laughs> <laughs> Embodying a text about the incompat- incompatibility of money and eternality in a piece that costs 320, 320 times the average annual income of a Pakistani citizen. It's easier for the camel to squeeze through the eye of an needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. As we march towards Holy Week, through this Lenten season of repentance, of prayer and fasting, we ask for God to reorient us to himself, to bring us back from all the ways that we've gone astray all the gods, lowercase g, that we worship that aren't the triune God. We ask him to bring us back from the exile of our sin, our unfaithfulness, in some cases our apathy. We ask him to realign us to his reign and his rule, to transform us by the renewing of our minds, to reestablish us in his love. We march towards the cross, and this week we jump straight in to the evangelist Mark's gospel, marching towards the cross. And it seems appropriate to jump to jump right in. After all, Mark's recording is punchy, it's staccato, it's peppered. And then, and then, and then, and then, and, then, and there's a bunch of immediately's. There's a pace to it. It's been called a passion narrative with an extended introduction, telling the story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem For his trial and death on the cross takes up about a third of the story. Mark is telling a story of the coming kingdom. The whole point is that God is establishing God's rulership over the creation that God created. It's about God. I have to confess, though, and I've confessed this to several of you, I'm not a great story reader. I'm not great at reading fiction. I consistently feel like someone is gonna revoke my ordination when I tell them that I've never read the Lord of the Rings trilogy and not a whole lot of the Chronicles of Narnia or even Harry Potter for that matter. I didn't say I won't, I said I have not patience. If I do read fiction, it it normally winds up being poetry or or short stories. I really love Flannery O'Connor for this. Because her stories are terse and wild. There's no time for long-winded ruminations about what someone might be feeling or thinking or descriptions about the shade cast on the bedroom floor. No, just action and irony. It's bare. Sometimes even grotesque. Her words are apocalyptic. So are some of the deeds. They break in on the present and leave an impact. Sometimes that impact is a bruise. (laughs) Sometimes it's a scar. And that's what Mark's gospel feels like to me. Blunt and ironic at times. Because sometimes you have to say one thing and mean the other for, you know, like the poem earlier today, for us to break up some of the ground to unearth and to disturb some of the deeply disturbing foundational things we've come to rely on you have to find a back door up until now in mark's gospel we've seen jesus preaching and teaching in parables healing and performing exorcisms the story mentions here and there that he's picking up crowds even as he's always on the move Sometimes this is the image that I get of Jesus when I think about him on the move through Galilee. But lest we get too comfortable with this affable Tom Hanks-like Jesus, you know, the Jesus that just dispenses practical wisdom and Proverbs, offers TED Talks that we can briefly engage with and then walk away from, we come to our passage today when a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? So Jesus deals in irony here. And irony number one happens in his answer to the man. And make no mistake, this is, not, this is, this is just some run-of-the-mill man. Unlike Luke's telling, we're not told his background. He's not a rich, young ruler. He's just a man. He's just a guy. He could be anyone. He could be you or he could be me. Jesus answers the man by kind of messing with him a little bit. Why do you call me good? No one is good except the one God. A careless reader might throw up their hands, and some scholars have, and say, oh, this proves that Jesus is just a man. He's not divine. But look closer. He's toying with this guy's logic and his assumptions. He's tangling our neat ideas of who Jesus is and what authority he wields. You see, like the psalmist, or later Paul might say, no one is righteous, not one. Jesus, as well as anyone, knows what it's like to be human. He knows no one's perfect. He knows we all sin and fall short of the glory of God except, well, God. His denial is not really a denial at all, but he's helping the guy realize that his clumsy address is just right on. He's standing in front of, this guy is standing in front of someone who rightly divides the word of God because he's come from God. Strewn throughout Mark's gospel is Jesus' grand messianic secret, right? He'll heal someone and then say, don't tell anyone. And it never works, or hardly ever works. Like all the beggars and lepers who have been healed and reintegrated back into society, back into real life, this man came to who he thought was a good man who might teach him a thing or two. And he left having encountered the God-man who was bringing about a kingdom as he marched towards his enthronement on Calvary's cross. The challenge for us, whether we've known Jesus for a while or even most of our lives, or if this is kind of a new thing, is to encounter Jesus again and again as God in the flesh as the one with authority to change our lives. As the unique one who shows us what it looks like to love and to be loved by God the Father, to live sacrificially and selflessly and to seek God's kingdom first rather than whatever little kingdom we're tempted to build on our own or whoever else's little kingdom we're tempted to join. I think it's easy sometimes for us in an awesome place like Durham with so many amazingly talented, smart people who are capable and creative and exciting and cool, for us to get used to that and to come to Jesus and call him good teacher, even sometimes on our knees, and to miss out on the wry irony that he alone understands eternal life because he was there at the creation of the universe. He's good exactly because the one God is good. And anything he can teach us with his words or with his life is because the creator has entered the creation and knows how things were meant to be, how this whole story is going and where it's headed. If we want to learn, we need to sit at the feet of the one who can tell us and show us what it means to be human. What it means to be made in the image of God. What ensues after that is Jesus' next irony. You might consider it like an irony of omission. If, you can, if there's sins of commission and sins of omission, this is an irony of omission. The man asks what it takes to receive eternal, unending, unfading, lasting life in the age to come. And Jesus brings it back to the basics of his youth. You see, these are things written so long ago on his doorpost that the paint is chipping. (laughs) He's so used to having them worn on his forehead that he doesn't even see it when he looks in the mirror anymore. The commandments Moses received for God's people at Sinai. The keystone of the Torah, God's law, that showed God's people how to be God's people. It's been said that these Ten Commandments are kind of split into two groups. The first four kind of have to do with how to to relate to God. Worship God alone. Don't make idols. Don't talk about God vainly. Set the Sabbath apart. And the last six show us how to treat each other honor mom and dad, don't kill, cheat, steal, lie, or covet. Jesus interrogates him based only on the latter group. You know the commandments. Don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't cheat, honor your father and mother. Last week I was on this this website for a Catholic retreat center that a pastor friend of mine was telling me about. And I checked out the calendar of events and what they had lined up. And several months ago, there's a secular Franciscan retreat. And I was like, what is a secular Franciscan retreat? I'm not really sure what that is or how it works, but I imagine the impulse to be a lot like the young man's. An earnest achiever who's done the right things, even treated people well, but failed to relate and recognize God even if he was standing right in front of him. Jesus didn't ask him about the first few commandments about God love because I'm not sure it really would have mattered. For all his good intentions, for all the success his wealth signaled, and let's not, let's not demonize wealth. Like Wealth means you're on the right track, that you're being blessed. For all of that, even for all of his humility for coming to Jesus to get a crash course in eternal life, it didn't really seem like this guy was picking up on Jesus' irony. If Jesus had asked him if he'd loved God, didn't make idols, kept the Sabbath, I'm sure he also probably would have answered in good conscience that he had. But when Jesus looked at him, When he looked at him and lovingly asked him to become like God, like the very good God standing in front of him, his affect dropped and he walked away sad. This is years before Paul would describe Jesus' whole life, death, and the trajectory of his followers. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich, he became poor for our sakes so that you could become rich through his poverty. This is before all that, Jesus called this poor, unexpecting, rich man to exactly that sort of godliness. This is explosive. (laughs) This is a destructive thought to someone who would be considered a success by in every conceivable way. And then after that guy walks away, sadly, then comes the mic drop moment for Jesus to his disciples. He says, It will be very hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. His words startled the disciples, so Jesus told them again, Children, <laughs> children, it's difficult to enter God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. This is where I, I lean on the wisdom of like preacher's preacher, Barbara Brown Taylor, she warns. It seems to me that Christians mangle this story in at least two ways. First, by acting as if it were not about money. And second, by acting as if it were only about money. That seems about right to me. We say money is not everything to us until someone messes with it if you want to pick a fight with someone, try to steal their money, right? That's like every Nicolas Cage movie ever. <laughs> we should know by now. Follow the election, you see. If you talk, start talking about taking people's money, whoa. Or we say that we're content. We say that we have faith that God is enough for us until it's gone. Whatever it is or whomever he or she happens to be. Like my, uh, I always think of this, uh, it wasn't money because we were in high school. It couldn't have been money. Um, But my, when I became a Christian at the end of high school, my best friend, one of his biggest impediments to coming to faith in Christ was he thought he was, and he did, actually, he thought he was going to have to throw away his Radiohead and Pearl Jam CDs, and he threw them away, and then he bought them back several years later, and he's still a Christian. (laughs) But that impulse in all of us and different things, that's the, that's the sneaky prosperity gospel. It's, it's sneaky because it subtly trumps the liberating good news of Jesus. One of my friends, a professor some of you know, has made a career researching and trying to understand this logic of how this works. Not just with health and wealth televangelists, but run-of-the-mill believers like this rich young man who encountered Jesus. Last summer, my friend Kate was diagnosed with an aggressive stage 4 cancer at the age of 35. Her and her husband have a not-yet-two-year-old, at the time, not-yet-two-year-old boy named Zach. Yesterday, she wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. I would really suggest you go see it. I couldn't help think about the way her awful struggle is forcing her to do some of this ground clearing that the man in Mark's gospel sadly couldn't or wouldn't. I mean, who would volunteer for that, right? She writes, cancer has kicked down the walls of my life. I cannot be certain I will walk my son to his elementary school someday or or subject his love interest to cheerful scrutiny. I struggle to buy books for academic projects I fear I can't finish for a perfect job I may be unable to keep. And then she, she continues later. Cancer requires that I stumble around in the debris of dreams I thought I was entitled to in plans I didn't realize I had made. The disciples look around dismayed, wondering if Jesus had just set the bar either impossibly high or or the, the lifting impossibly heavy. After all, you're more likely to get the United States government to buy your colorless life-size plaster dromedary for almost a half a million dollars and ship it halfway around the world than to fit the largest ancient Near Eastern animal through the smallest aperture they would have known. They're dismayed, they say, who then can be saved? Who indeed? Jesus answers, it's impossible for human beings, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And I have like a sports ministry background, so this winds up on every t-shirt and every poster. And I meant to put a Kevin Garnett slide up there of "Impossible is nothing." You know this has got to be one of the most decontextualized verses, but Jesus says, "It is impossible with human beings, but not with God." All things are possible with God. In short, for all you who are so used to sin and death, eternal life seems like a pipe dream. That only in the person of Jesus Christ is this impossible intersection of God and man, of eternal and temporal, of rich and poor, of insider and outsider. This is the Gospel. This is the impossible good news. That God has come to us that we might come back to Him. That God has made the impossible possible by sending Jesus to save us and to bring about the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes I think that this grace gets miscommunicated and I think it's we do it unintentionally and with good motives you've heard the offer grace means we get everything and bring nothing to the table and to an extent that's true there's nothing we can do to make God love us more or less Jesus is God's definitive statement on how much he loves us loves me loves you loves our neighbors. This sort of last statement should be a game changer for how we live and how we work from a place of rest towards shalom. But I think there's a deeper math at play here with God's grace. It's deeper than this all-for-nothing transaction. Stories like this story today of this man coming to Jesus, they reveal the utter costliness of free grace. That Jesus offers, the the offer of Jesus is is more like an everything for everything trade. God's all for our all. The sheer incompatibility and scales is just mind-boggling there, right? Like the man who sold everything in the field or sold everything to get the treasure in the field Salvation and life in the kingdom begs for our participation, begs for our risk. Our treasure for God's treasure. I don't think this is some Pollyanna version of the faith. If Jesus shows us anything, it's that this sort of faith can and will get you killed. All who want to save their lives will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me will find them, he says in Matthew 16. Such is the ironic way of the Christ. Such is the ironic way of the cross. That sin and death and Satan and the Roman Empire and the religious elite all conspired to kill, steal, and destroy Jesus' life to thwart God's rescue of God's creation. And all these efforts to short-circuit only empowered that plan, only launched the kingdom. What the enemy meant for evil, God made good. So each of us are invited. Invited to what one paraphrase says, the great reversal Many who are first will end up last in the last first. Jesus calls us to follow him. This morning, calls us to follow him and don't overpack. Just come. Come with all all yourself. Come with all of your baggage and let him give you his easy yoke and his light burden. Empty your hands. Think about that. Think about that when we're praying here in a minute. Empty your hands so that you can receive. Empty your hearts so that they can overflow. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for doing what only you can do. That's come to us. There's no way we, we're coming to you on our own. We thank you for Jesus' brutally costly call to follow him. But Lord, we thank you for the superabundance of mercy and grace. And acceptance and riches that we can expect when we do come to you. Lord, let all these things pale in comparison, Lord. Give us us courage, Lord. Give us faith. Give us the faith to let go. The faith to leave behind. And the faith to follow. We pray all this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.